live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. Have we gotten to this point where people wake up every morning looking for something to be offended about? I live in this place called the real world, and I understand what is going to happen. Her story is, I was trying to scare him away. At the same time, she shot him point blank in the face. Okay, that's not exactly a warning shot. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. Coming up next, Squirrel. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Good to be back. Drew, producing the show today and always. You carried on well in my absence, I, I presume. At least everything still works. So. Yeah, okay. I'm still standing. We're still ticking. Absolutely. Well, I hope you had a great holiday season and a very happy new year. Again, it's uh, that the time just goes by. It was two weeks that I ended up being off, and I, I did spend some time in the repair places. Like I say, I caught a truck throws up the stone, hits my windshield, and that started a couple a uh, couple trips to the ultimately the windshield repair store. But, and it's not like the old days where you know they can just slap a piece of, of glass in and replace it. Now it's these high-tech windshields that have to be safety calibrated and all this type of stuff. And, of course, they're three times as much money as the old sort of windshields were, but what can you do? And then, yes, that story I was telling a couple minutes ago was true. It's like we've got an open house on New Year's Eve, all these people coming over. My wife sends me down to the basement about 545. Hey, bring up some folding chairs. You walk down there, and there's this big puddle of water. That does not belong. And then, of course, it, it's like, okay, you're in denial. Maybe there's not as much water as I think there is, but no, there, there's a lot of water because this hot water heater that candidly had been our house, the, the condo that I live in is a side-by-side condo. It's like a house. had been built in like 2004, and the water heater was original equipment, and it just decided that it was going to burst or have a leak or something, and it chose New Year's Eve probably around 5 o'clock to do that, but... No problem. Got the plumber out, and Adam came in, brought in a new hot water heater, and by 9 o'clock, we were good to go, and it gave me an interesting story. But it's like, I swear, some of these appliances, they know. They know when it's New Year's Eve. They know when it's Christmas Eve. You, you can't notice the leak at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning when it's easy and not double time to get people to come out and fix stuff. No, it has to be on New Year's Eve or whatever. But all's well that ends well. Like I say, I hope you had a great Christmas and a great New Year. It is 2020. We start my fourth decade of doing a radio show. Start of the fourth decade, and I have been looking forward to it. Okay, we do not go gently into the good week. One of the things that I do, even when I'm on vacation, is not not as intently as I do when I'm doing the show on a daily basis, but I do try to keep up with current events, and I amass a series of stories that I find to be interesting, and I hope that you will as well, and we're going to work our way through them. So some of them might have broken a week or so ago. Bear with me because I think they're still extremely interesting. Let's get started. Hubbard Park Lodge. Hubbard Park Lodge is, it's a restaurant in, in Hubbard Park. It's not open all the time, but they have a brunch. They have Friday fish fries. It's actually quite good. All right, Hubbard Park Lodge in the news because they decided, hey, what we want to do is we want to we want to kind of jump on board this new trend that's going on. For example, there's the cafe uh, at the Benelux Cafe in the Third Ward. They they have like those snow globes, 
and you can sit on the roof and you can be on a snow in a snow globe and you know you can eat outside during during the winter and it's a very very popular thing so at hubbard park lodge what they decide is hey we want to we want to capture this experience we want people to be able to still be outside during the winter, but be comfortable. So one of the things that they've done is they said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get a couple tents, and we're going to erect these these tents. And what we want is we want them to be such that you can put a fire pit in the middle of the tent, and the idea that, well, people, you know, you'll have this heated structure. So people will be able to go out. They'll be able to use the heated structure. They'll be able to get food. They'll be able to hang out outside this fire pit. And, you know, you can rent them out. Okay, makes sense. How could that be controversial, you might ask? Well, it's become controversial because in choosing the particular type of tent, what they decided to do is they decided to go with th- these these tents that are essentially they're 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 like they're like teepees that would be used by can you still say Indians in 2020 Native Americans you know they're, they're the traditional sort of teepees so they're not like a pup tent but they're they're round at the bottom. And, you know, they kind of go in it, they're in a cone sort of shape, but they're perfect because there's, for what they're trying to accomplish, because there's more space at the bottom and you can put the fire pit in and people can kind of gather around the fire pit, right? That, that's, that's the idea. So they want to use this so people can rent them out. That's the whole plan behind this. I don't think anybody, at least certainly not the people that were putting these up, felt that they were controversial until Hubbard Park announces, you know, here, this is what we've got. We've got these these tents that you can rent. They call them tall timber tents. But, you know, you could also, if you would look at this, you would say, hey, this looks like a teepee. All right. So the problem is that you have some of the perpetually offended and the politically correct who are outraged that Hubbard Park is using teepees for their domes as their heated structure. And the argument is, this is, wait for it, cultural appropriation. How dare, how dare anybody who's not Native American use one of these quote-unquote teepees or tall timber tents? It's okay to use them for ceremonial purposes for Native Americans, but this is monetizing the culture. And, And it is terrible that... People that are not Native Americans would be renting these type of structures and using them. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Now, I have a confession to make. All right, over the break, um, I I enjoy Chinese food. I, I do, I do. And um, historically, a couple of my sisters-in-laws and brothers-in-law, we get together over the holidays and we go to our favorite Chinese restaurant. Go to our favorite Chinese restaurant downtown. Wonderful place. And we order all sorts of food that we like. And you know what? On a, We did that over this weekend, over the, over the holidays. And you know what? I know how to use chopsticks. I do. Now, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm a, a middle-aged white guy, but I know how to use chopsticks. And you know what? 
I was using chopsticks. So am I guilty of cultural appropriation? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, should the people at Hubbard Park who are using these tall timber tents, teepees, whatever you want to call them, should they be... I don't know, criticize. Should they be sorry? Is this a shameful thing or is this political correctness once again run amok? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Back to discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I admit that this stuff makes my head explode, and it did in 2019, and it did in 2010, and it certainly does it in 2020. Hubbard Lodge, which is uh, it's a restaurant that's open part-time in, in Shorewood. They want to create an outdoor dining experience, so they go and they erect a couple, we'll call them teepees. It, it's, again, it's that tall tent structure. They are perfect because what they're going to do is they're going to have a fire pit in them, and you can rent them, and you can have a food experience, etc. They're not trying to imitate a Native American culture, but they're, they're the tent structure that's there. And you have a bunch of these people who are absolutely going nuts. Oh, this is cultural appropriation. And by the way, Hubbard Park Lodge isn't the only place that's doing this. There are other campgrounds and stuff across the state that apparently you can rent We'll call them TPs if you want. All right, is this offensive to Native Americans? When I go to my favorite Chinese restaurant in downtown Milwaukee and I use chopsticks, am I culturally appropriating things? Give me a break. Let's start with Sue in Cedarburg. Sue, you're first. Hello. Hello. Oh, my goodness. What will they think of next? But think about it. There are shoes out there and slippers that are moccasins, you know, and, and we buy those. Um, we buy blankets, and they call them Navajo blankets. I mean, what's next? Well, right. I mean, doesn't there ha- – look, I, I understand. If we were talking about, say, the, the Cleveland, old Cleveland Indians logo, where you had the, 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 comic, the, the comical you know, Native American face, okay, maybe I can understand why people are offended by that. I might even get to the idea of redskins. But the notion that you, you now can't rent a tall timber tent or a teepee without being accused of cultural appropriation, it, it just it makes your head want to explode. Well, they're not calling it a teepee. Nope. It happens to be a tent, and it isn't even looking like a teepee. It's just it's rounder and it's yep. more boxier. And and give me a break. They <laughs> they they want to they want to make something out of nothing because they can. Well, that thanks for that. That's it. Because there's somebody somewhere who's always offended by something. Now, I think if you would look at these, most people, you would say, oh, that, that, that's a teepee. But I didn't understand. I, I've never realized that wanting to rent that type of tent for a dining experience or whatever, I've never realized that that was something that we should be offended by or that we need to apologize for. If I'm the folks at Hubbard Park Lodge and I'm getting some of this feedback, you know what my response is? It's, you know, get a life. I mean, seriously, get a life. There are real issues that we have to deal with in today's society when it comes to discrimination, when it comes to racial hostility, etc., etc. But really, you're going to look at these types of things and you're going to say, okay, well, I'm going to be offended because nobody other than a Native American can use that type of tent? Really? 
I mean, you know, it's so frustrating. I'm getting a number of texts who are making the point about like the, the snow globe type of things. Should should people who are Eskimos, for example, should they be offended by that? Because, OK, is that cultural appropriation? Again, is it cultural appropriation to use chopsticks if you're not? Um, you know, Chinese. Well, all right, I'm going to continue to use chopsticks because I like them and because I can. And the idea of renting a tent and having to apologize for the type of tent is incredibly uh, frustrating. Jeff, at Kohler Andre State Park, there's a teepee that's actually called a teepee. And people need to book that site a year and advance to get it. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with this at all. All right, back with more in just a minute. And that's how we start out 2020. It's uh, 1222. This is Jeff Wagner. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. Good to be back. All right, a number of things were happening in the court system that raises, I think, a series of questions. Let, let's start with one of these stories. You have a, a new Wisconsin, Milwaukee County Circuit Court judge. Her name is Danielle Shelton. She was a former public defender, ran against one of the uh, appointees of Scott Walker, and largely because it was a Scott Walker appointee, she she got elected. It's Milwaukee County. We've got to vote against anybody that supports Scott Walker. You know how that story works. All right. She has been... Well, a bit problematic since she took the bench, and you had a classic example of that that uh, happened about a week or so ago. One of the things that we learn is that in the court system, you're supposed to be colorblind. You cannot discriminate against people because of their race, right? It's something that, you know, I I think is, 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 uh, a, a centerpiece of any sort of judicial system that you can't discriminate against people based on race. Well, here's here is the story. In a trial, what happens is you need a criminal trial. You need 12 jurors to decide on ultimately whether or not somebody's proved guilty or or not guilty. So what happens because sometimes people can get sick or whatever is when you have a trial, you will have. Not just 12 jurors, but depending on how long the trial is going to be, you will have maybe 13 jurors or 14 jurors. You will have two people who are ultimately going to be alternates. The idea being if the trial completes itself and nobody's gotten sick, that's fine. What you do is you discharge the alternates. Typically what happens is you do not pick the alternates in advance. You wait till the trial gets done, and then what you do is, generally speaking, you draw lots. And the, the two people who you put all the names in a hat and you say, OK, we've got two extra jurors and you pull their names and they are the alternates. It's generally a random process. Well, here's the deal in front of Judge Shelton. They complete the trial. They've got two extra people. So they have to decide who is going to be alternates. And what she decides to do, based on a motion from the defense attorney, the defendant in this case is African-American. So there are white jurors, there are African-American jurors, and Judge Shelton decides, all right, we are only going to pull the alternates. We're not going to do this at random. We're only going to pull the alternates from the white jurors. 
In other words, none of the black jurors will be considered to be alternates. They're in automatically. So we're not using a random process at all. Now, the district attorney's office objects to this, but the judge doesn't care about it. Um, Ultimately, the defendant is convicted which I think makes it much more difficult moving forward to see if you can appeal this. But the question that, uh, for example, the Journal Sentinel raises is, you know, is is this possibly constitutional? And the answer is absolutely not. I, I think, you know, whether you're a liberal attorney, whether you're a conservative attorney, you know, regardless of your position on this, to discriminate based on somebody's race, just like it is blatantly illegal and unconstitutional to decide I am not going to put people on the jury because of their race. It is similarly unconstitutional to take people off of the jury simply because of their race as well. And in this case, this is what this Milwaukee County judge decided to do. All right, we are not going to use a random process. We're only going to allow the white people to be removed. It is screamingly unconstitutional. Now, again, the problem here is it's tough to get a decision like this reviewed because, like I say, the guy was convicted ultimately by the jury. So, you know, the state doesn't have a basis for appealing that if he had been acquitted well what they say is the jeopardy would have attached and it would have been possible to remove him from that you put this whole thing together and you've got an absolute mess now this is not the first time that this particular judge who hasn't been on the bench that long has done stuff that raised a whole bunch of eyebrows but this is one of those situations that if you always thought that justice should be colorblind well i would have agreed with you but that's not the way it operates apparently in Milwaukee. Milwaukee County. Just a stunning, stunning decision. Okay, when we come back, it's the big story out of Illinois. We're going to discuss it. What's going to be the long-term effect of legalizing pot? This is Jeff Wagner on WGMJ. So, very glad to have you with us. All right, if you follow me on Twitter, and it's at Jeff Wagner 620 sent out a... A link to a story that appeared in the Chicago Tribune yesterday about, um, well, how to get high. Tips on smoking edibles, microdose tips on smoking, comma, edibles, microdosing, and more as recreational weed becomes legal in Illinois. If you are a child of the 70s and your your typical exposure to marijuana is, well, I'm, I'm going to buy the, the marijuana cigarette. Well, you can still do that. They do sell pre-rolled joints, but they also sell all sorts of other ways that you can ingest marijuana, ranging from buds to edibles. You've got to be careful with edibles. The story says because they they take longer to take effect because they have to be processed by the stomach but they hit with higher potency so you've got that you've got vaping you've got all these different choices it's not simply hey i want to smoke a joint anymore but the lines outside all these different places and yesterday was the first day that you could legally purchase recreational marijuana um the lines were if you're seeing these stories hours long you had a number of people who were waiting hours and hours and hours to be some of the first to purchase weed 
in various forms down in Illinois. In Illinois, 75 licenses are going to be issued in the first year. First round will go to 55 existing medical marijuana dispensaries. Um, and um, then there's also going to be the recreational ones. There are at least four of the first Illinois, 30 Illinois recreational dispensaries. They're within a half-hour drive from Wisconsin to our south of Kenosha. But the bottom line of all this is there's all sorts of people People who are flocking to these. And if you watch the TV, some of these people that are flocking there are, in fact, Wisconsin residents. Now, just because you can purchase it in Illinois doesn't mean that it's legal to bring it back to Wisconsin, but there's a number of people who are doing that regardless. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here's what I would like to discuss with you. I want you to look in your crystal ball five years from now, five years from now, is Illinois going to look back at yesterday and today where they've now jumped feet first into the legalization of marijuana? Are they going to look back and say, okay, this was a good move or Are they going to come to regret it? Now, that's an important question because at some point in time over the next several years, Wisconsin is going to have to be confronting that issue as well. 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I understand that I swim upstream with this. Over the years, whenever we have talked about legalized marijuana on this program, I would say the calls run 80-20 in favor of legalization. And the big arguments that I hear are, well, people are going to do it anyways, so given the fact that people are going to do it, why don't we just legalize it? Why don't we tax it? Why don't we get the revenue? All right, that's the argument. My counter-argument is that, yes, people do it. I understand that. But if you make something legal, more and more people will do it. And is that really good for a society to have all these people that are lining up outside dispensaries wanting to purchase a substance which is going to be, to an extent, mind-altering? All right. That means more people potentially driving uh, on the roads when they're high. Is that a good thing? That means more people potentially coming to work with marijuana in their system. Is that a good thing? Is it worth it? Is Illinois going to come to regret it? And again, I recognize that I am swimming upstream when I say this, but my prediction is I bet they do. All right, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The counterargument is, hey, it, it look, th- this is the wave of the future. This is where we are. Let's go with the flow. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, Illinois has jumped with both feet into the idea of recreational marijuana. If you look at the television coverage, it appears to be a big hit. You have people from Illinois who are standing in line for hours and hours and hours. It's like the ham store in Wauwatosa before Christmas. They're standing in line to buy their various forms of marijuana, and it's not just joints anymore. All right, Wisconsin is looking at this. 
855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I come this way but once, and I recognize that I am swimming upstream. I think Illinois is going to come to regret this particular decision. And I understand that you've got other cities and other states that have done this. I understand the trend nowadays is, hey, let's legalize marijuana, let's tax it, let's get revenue. I think they're going to come to regret it because I think there is a social cost to this. And my basic premise is that if you legalize something, you increase the usage. And I'm not naive. I understand that people smoke marijuana. I understand that people have been smoking marijuana. But if you legalize it, you normalize it. The usage of this is going to increase. And I guess my question is, is that going to make society a better place if we have more people who are getting high on pot and presumably driving and presumably going to work and all those types of things. Jeff, uh, regarding the recreational aspect, Illinois was put on notice before the last gubernatorial election by the firm handling the pension debt that they better plan on increasing taxes, taxes despite who wins. Pot is part of that and part of the bailout plan. Yeah, so I, I understand that. It's the, the argument is people are going to do it. Let's generate revenue. Okay, well, th- does that mean it's good public policy? Let's start with Chuck in Manitowoc. Chuck, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. What do you have, think? And Happy New Year. Same to you, sir. Uh, you, you, you made the comment about uh, uh, state, you know, Illinois coming to regret it. Well, for one, I haven't heard of a state yet that's regretted legalizing it. I mean, you look at what Colorado and Oregon have done with their with the money they've brought in, mm-hmm. and then you made the you made the comment. Well, you say about, you say you haven't you talked know, about people, regretting. Let Let's stop there for a second. Right, Col- Colorado makes money from that, but there have been social costs. You talk to the mayors of some of the border towns, and they'll tell you it's been a disaster because they have all sorts of people that are flocking there because of the legal marijuana, and then they're staying there, and you have increases in homelessness. I mean, do you really think there's going to be no social cost to this? Oh, there's going to be there's going to be a social cost to anything you you want to implement. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, so, I mean, I don't really see that as, as a problem. Uh if there's homelessness, you know, a lot of the tax revenue they're getting from is going to fight that. I mean, if you look at what Denver has done with their school systems, uh, my nephew lives out there. He's got two younger kids. And you want after-school programs that are funded by legal weed. It's amazing. His son is nine years old, and he's into advanced robotics already and and things like that. It's they've done amazing things. They have. Denver um, has turned marijuana into after-school programs. There, there's no question about that. They get about one and a half million dollars a year for after-school programs coming from weed. I guess the question is going to be: Is there a social cost to that one point five million? Okay. Thanks for I look at, and I, I understand. I understand it generates revenue, so I, I get it. At the same time, if if the flip side of of that is yes, we're we're getting more revenue in, but at the flip side, we're having more people that are driving under the influence of of a mind altering substance. If we have more people who are, I don't know, dropping out of society because they've you know be, gone down the pothead route, right? The question becomes, where is that that balancing? Now, again, I understand there's this thirst for tax revenue that's there. 
And I understand the argument that people make that say, well, okay, yes, you know, maybe one out of ten people who start with marijuana are going to use that as a gateway drug. But that's what about those other nine out of ten? And isn't alcohol just as bad? My question has always been, though, do you want to – if, if we agree that we have a problem with drunken driving – do you want to say, okay, let's let's complement this, let's potentially make it worse by legalizing pot? Mike, Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff, thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Yeah, sure. Um, I I do. I think you're off base here with this. Um, are are more people going to try it? it? There's going to be a few more people trying it. There are going to be more people bringing it back across state lines. That's their own decision. They're going to have to deal with. It, they're going to have to realize it's it's wrong. It's they're going to get arrested. That's not right. We have to wait until it's legal here. Um, as far as oh god, I'm all flustered now. <laughs> You're doing as fine. As, uh, <laughs> You're doing fine. Okay. My daughter lives in Canada also, and there are social programs being developed mm-hmm. with with this money that's being generated also. So I, I just I think the the benefits. I'm a chronic pain. Sufferer also. Mm-hmm. I've had three fusions in my back, and right. it just it helps tremendously. Well, see, and I, and I want to, uh, yeah. I mean, I want to separate. Thanks for calling. My, I mean, I want to separate things, and and this is where I, I I have I have always, or at least for the last several years, I have been a pro- proponent of of medical marijuana, and and the reason is, and again, I think a lot of you know my my background. My first wife passed away terminal cancer, and you know at the um, she had liver cancer, and in order to control pain and things like that, I mean, she was she was getting prescriptions for opioids and she, until the very end. She didn't take the opioids, um, but but she was getting you know the the, the, the high end opioids. And I, I've always believed that okay, in a situation where if a doctor could prescribe that, if you have, for example, marijuana that might in, take take the cancer patient might um, increase their appetite. It might, um, I don't know, ease nausea, any of those different type of things. If you can prescribe, you know, these high-power opioids, why shouldn't a physician be able to also prescribe marijuana? Okay, I've always believed that. So, I mean, for people that are suffering with chronic pain and things like that, I believe that medical marijuana should be an alternative that you can potentially use. Now, having said that that's an alternative, though, for, again, the prescription stuff, that's different than recreational. And that's where I've always kind of drawn the line. But if you want to talk about medical marijuana, I'm cert- I'm not the guy to argue with you about that. Let's talk to Maria in Milwaukee. Maria, you're in WTMJ. Hello. Maria? Hello, and how are you doing? I am I'm well. So happy I got New Year. To talk to you. Well, thank you for calling. Oh, happy New Year to you. Yes. I was just curious because I, I was listening to the station and wondering why no one is mentioning alcohol. And alcohol is worse. So... I'm thinking no one says anything when the snowmobilers are out there, when the bikers are out there. I mean, I'm 65. And, yeah, did I try this back in the day? Yeah. I have a lot of health issues. And, dude, you don't get, you know, I mean, you can actually (laughs) have marijuana and not, well, you know, I mean, really. And, And you're not falling off your bike as compared to having 
liquor inside you, and you're like, whoa. Well, so, okay, so Marie, Who now first of all, you got to understand, I'm, I'm not going to be the poster boy for, for drunken driving, and I agree we have a huge epidemic of alcohol exactly. abuse. Okay, so I'm with yeah. you on that. But, but because we have a problem with alcohol abuse, does that mean that we want to make it easier for people to, I don't know, try other mind-altering substances and get behind the wheels of cars? Because I don't know about you, but I don't want somebody high on pot driving a car either. Seriously, I'm all with you. I have a granddaughter that was hooked on, on uh, heroin, went through that. I have a niece that's on cocaine. I could give you the whole the shebang on this, and I, and I get it. I get it. But when I look at what marijuana can do and compare to liquor, it's like you, you try to see both of them, and it's like it's not really doing. It's like doing the tollways in, in Illinois, and Milwaukee's not getting up to the fact that, come on, do that and, and help taxing everybody else. Well, and I, no one's doing that. Well, Maria, thank, thanks for Look, I mean, here, here's the thing. I, 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 I understand the search for alternative tax revenue. Okay, I, I get it. And I, I appreciate that we've got all these needs and things like that. And, and I'm, I'm all in favor of that. My concern is that taking, if you agree with my premise that legalizing something is going to increase its usage. And, and I think that's, that's a fair comment. I think there's no question that we're going to look back and we're going to say, okay, ever since we started legalizing marijuana, that means more and more people are going to use it. I, for for a small number of people, it is in fact a gateway drug. I, I don't you you know the numbers I see are about ten percent. Maybe it's five percent. Maybe it's fifteen percent. That that you know people who go on to harder drugs you know start with marijuana. But let let's let's use that ten percent number. Okay, now that doesn't mean that people you know aren't going to still you know that don't use marijuana now aren't going to you know go on to other drugs but i think it means that a higher number of people are going to start using marijuana so you've got that social cost that is there i am concerned about the other social costs as well that that come with it so i get the revenue i also understand that i am swimming upstream here because the, the general attitude is well people are going to do it anyways so why don't we legalize it why don't we tax it i think it's going to be interesting Five years from now, maybe we'll be having the same discussion. We'll look back. Yes, Illinois will have gotten a lot of extra tax revenue, and you know who knows what they will have done with it. They'll have gotten a lot of extra tax revenue, but the question will be, has there been a social cost? And, and my answer is, I, I think, yes, there will be. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. Melissa Barkley, first of all, nice to see you again. Haven't nice seen to see you for you. a while. Yes. Um, happy New Year. Did you have a happy New Year? I did. I had a wonderful New Year. All right. Just did some, you know, something low-key, but still it was nice. That's it. Uh, well, that's the way it is. Are you a... Are you a regular uh, rideshare user? Do you use like Uber or Lyft or things like I that? I do. You know, funny you mentioned that. On New Year's Eve, I did. I took a, a Lyft. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just so you don't have to drive, don't have to worry right. about drinking and the convenience. Correct, yeah. I actually, I, I mean, I, I think more and more people are are doing that um, for exactly those reasons. You don't want to have to worry about drinking and driving. I think as more people, for example, particularly younger people, move into the downtown, the urban areas, don't want to be saddled with the hassle of the expense of a car and Mm -hmm. insurance and figuring out where to park. And and so they're they're using those ride-sharing things more often. I would agree with you, yeah. It, Yeah. It is definitely the wave of the future. 
which brings us to our first topic in this hour. All right, if if we agree that Uber and Lyft are things that, that people are going to use now and are going to continue to do, and I, I believe that to be the case, I, I think it's a growth sort of business. The question becomes, where are you going to get the people that drive for Uber and Lyft? And this has become a very interesting question because of a new law that went into effect in California. And all this stuff starts in California, and then it migrates, you know, back east, and it ends up in places like Madison. Starting yesterday, January 1st, a new law went into effect in California. And I'm going to sort of summarize this, but what it essentially does is it's targeted at what they call the gig economy gig gig you know like if you're a if you're a musician you get a gig so you know on friday night you might go and play at Gru's roadhouse you're not an employee of rose Gru's roadhouse they've hired you to come in and you know and play on on friday night and then maybe saturday you're going to go over to jeff's bar and grill and you're going to play there it, it's a gig you're, you're not an employee of any of the places but you play gigs well the basic concept between, and we'll talk about Uber now, and, and maybe you're, you're a driver for Uber. The whole idea behind Uber is that Uber does not have, as a general rule, the employees at Uber are not drivers. What happens is you sign up, you qualify to be a driver, and then you, by and large, Decide the hours that you want to work. Uber doesn't come in and say, okay, you've got to be here and you've got to be available to drive from 9 in the morning till 5 at night or from 7 at night till midnight. I mean, Uber does not assign your hours. You get to decide how long it is that you want to work, and you get to decide when you want to work. Now, Uber does tell you routes that you're supposed to take, and Uber does set the rates for fees and things like that, but but in essence – the, the appeal of being an Uber driver, for example, is that you, you get to call your own hours and you get to work as much as you want or as little as you want. And it applies to Uber drivers and all sorts of other people who act kind of as freelancers. The law in California that went into effect yesterday essentially says that all the people that are driving for Uber and all sorts of other freelancers as well, You're not freelancers anymore. You are employees of the company, which means you are entitled to benefits, which means you are entitled to, you know, certain minimum wage payments. You're not independent contractors. You are your employees. And the result of this, if the law is upheld, is that it's essentially, I think, probably going to put Uber and Lyft and other sorts of businesses out of business in California because it is going to dramatically increase costs. Now, it's good, I guess, for some of the employers, employees, because assuming they want to work that, that long, well, now you're going to be getting benefits, et cetera, et cetera. But it means higher costs for the users because those costs are going to get passed on. But it also changes the character of you know who an Uber driver is, and it says that this, these gigs, that this idea that you can decide when you want to work, that's going to make you an employee. Our number eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now 
I, I think the beauty of of Uber and Lyft and some of these other ride sharing services, the beauty of this whole concept is that people get to decide when they want to work and how long they want to work. So if you decide, you know, I, I don't want to be driving around, I don't want to be on call um, for you know, large chunks uh, of the evening, you find you don't have to do it. You sign up, you go out and you say, okay, I, I'm going to, I'm going to work New Year's Eve and I'm going to work from 10 un- until 2, but I don't want to work New Year's Day or I don't want to work an eight hour shift. That's kind of the beauty of the setup. This law effectively eliminates that. Now, there's nothing in the law that says that you can't allow people to schedule themselves and you can't allow people to decide how much time they're going to work. But as a practical matter, that's not what the business model is. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I guess the question is, should these companies, these rideshare companies, be forced as to law under law to treat the people who drive for them as employees? And my answer is my answer is no. I mean, I think this is the business model that, that's out there. And I think, you know, granted, you don't get health insurance benefits, but at the same time, you're not an employee in the typical sense. You get to control your hours. You get to decide when you want to work. You get to decide how much you want to work. And to me, that doesn't make you an employee. That makes you an independent contractor. It's not like a job, for example, here at WTMJ, where my producer, who is an employee, he gets a schedule. And the schedule says, okay, well, you're supposed to be here. You get here at 10 o'clock. You're here till 4 o'clock. That, that's the deal. All right, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with David and Mequon. David, good afternoon. You're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Hi, David. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Hello? Yeah, hi. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I was just going to say, you know, California, what they've been trying to do is essentially, you know, top-down government. They want to control everything that a person does within that state. Um, it, you know, this is just another great example of, I think, where the, the state has actually gone too far. And I'm hopeful, even though there's a very liberal Supreme Court over there in California, in the state there, um, based upon some other rulings, they've actually been pushing back against uh, yeah. some of the policies that California did. I know uh, this, and unrelated, uh, the reason why I'm hopeful that this will be repealed is that uh, they were trying to get uh, Donald Trump to have his taxes and his returns right. in order for him to get in the primary, and the Supreme Court there it was unanimous that they said that that's a slippery slope. So I'm hopeful that maybe they'll look at this in the same way that this is a little bit too much overboard with uh, the policies. Well, I guess I'm just looking at this, and, and if this is upheld, I mean, it seems to me what happens is Uber goes out of business because this will increase the costs of Uber dramatically because it's not their business model. And so it, people might say, oh, well, this is going to be good for the employees. Well, not if Uber goes out of business and doesn't operate in California, then everybody ends up losing right, their right, job. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, at the end of the day, um, uh, yeah, they would just, if they don't win, yes, they will for sure end up pulling out because uh, the the amount to, to charge that wouldn't be right. worth it as far as, you know, trying to recoup some of those costs. Right. No, thanks for calling. And, 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 it's, and it's not the Uber business model. It's not the Lyft business model. The model is you are not employees. 
the model is you get to, and that that's the the beauty of it. I, I guess in one hand, the, it's like, look, you 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 do this as a second or third or fourth job. Okay, that this isn't like the full time job. Now, some people might try to make it that way, but this is you want to pick up a few extra bucks driving on a Friday night or a Saturday night or or whatever. This is your opportunity to do that, and you get to you get to control how long you want to work. And you know, you're seeing this play out. Um, you know, here we you. I don't know about you, but let's see a show of hands. Everybody that got a package delivered to them, maybe you ordered it through Amazon, maybe you ordered it through somewhere else, got a package delivered over the last couple of weeks. Okay, well, maybe maybe that was delivered by a full-time FedEx driver or UPS driver, but it, it might have just been also one of these part-timers because that's what happens a lot too. You have these part-timers who will say, okay, I want to work for four hours on a Sunday afternoon, and I'm going to pick up packages, and I'm going to deliver them for those four hours and then I want to go back and I want to watch the Packers game. Well, the company can't say, no, 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 you have to drive for eight hours. The company says, okay, you're, you're there for four hours. We'll pay you for the four hours. You change that model and you start saying you have to treat all these people as employees and you have to pay them you know, certain minimum wages and you have to offer them benefits and all these things. And, and you're going to just the costs are going to explode, and that's the real thing. Now, in California, it's even weirder because I'm just talking about Uber and Lyft, but this whole thing applies to all sorts of other people as well. For example, if you're a writer, if you let's say you write columns for a local newspaper, well, you're limited to 35 columns a year. If you write, if you submit more than 35 articles, you have to be considered to be a full-time employee. So the effect is, well, okay, they're, they're not going to take more articles from you. Jeff in Sheboygan. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? Well, I, as a previous Uber driver, I couldn't even keep up with my car maintenance, much less get any kind of uh, health insurance or anything. I really believe that this is not a bad idea for full-time drivers. I do believe that you need to put at least 40 hours in, but I don't see how this is really hurtful. Well, I mean, from the perspective, yeah, I, but I, what about all the driver? But what about all the drivers who don't want to work forty hours? I mean, because that—that's a good I believe them. Yes, in that in that respect, the part-time drivers, I believe, no. I mean, do you have to have uh, over thirty-two hours? I believe in most states, to even be considered full-time as it is. Right, and what uh, right. to be able to get health benefits and all that such. Right. But if you're a full-time driver, I really believe that this is not a bad idea because there are a lot of people out there trying to make it on a gig economy, and they can't do it. Well, exactly. But this, I mean, thanks for calling. See, and, I, and I understand all that, but but this that's the whole key to this. This doesn't apply to you know just full-time drivers. I mean, it, it applies to you know all the different drivers that are out there. And so by doing that, you end up in the situation where you've taken what is part-time drivers and you've turned them into a, a set, effectively, you know, full-time employees that are going to be entitled to all this. I, I'm, and I look, I, I, if you want to argue that Uber 
does not pay what it should pay and that it should increase the minimum amounts it pays, I, I'm all I'm all in favor of that. Matter of fact, in California, one of the things that Uber has done is I think they've they've agreed to up their compensation to like twelve bucks an hour minimum. Okay, and it's and, and I don't know if you can make money doing that or not. And I'm not suggesting that this is the greatest gig to do. But I, I do think that there's this whole thing that comes with the added flexibility and you're taking, you know, that you're, you're taking that away from from them. It's just not the business model that's out there. Now, maybe you can argue that this is a crummy business model and people shouldn't be driving for them because you can't make money and you'd be better off, you know, driving a cab or driving a truck or whatever. And, and that may very well be the case, but that's not what the model is. And if this law is upheld, I think the practical effect of it is going to be that Uber just says, okay, well, we're, we're not going to offer this service in California anymore or other states that end up doing it. And then the question becomes, okay, are, are people really better off? We'll, we'll know the answer soon. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. All right, here's a guy. Looks like he's about to win the legal lottery. And I'm not going to criticize the city attorney's office because what happens sometimes is in our modern litigation system, sometimes it's just cheaper to to pay pay the the ticket and and move on. Here here's the deal, guy. Apparently, this goes back to 2012. What happens is, young man. Enrique Avina Jr. arrested October 1st, 2012 for trespassing on the South Division High School campus. All right. Apparently what happens is uh, somebody from South Division, a police officer, a couple police officers, see the guy ride his bike onto school property despite two previous warnings not to return. He was a student at the high school, but had only been to one hour of class that year and had skipped classes that day. The assistant principal told the police that the guy had not been reinstated as a student and he shouldn't be on school property. At the time, the high school was struggling with gang violence, and this particular guy had gathered outside the school's main entrance during dismissal time with a group of 8 to 10 people that included known members of a gang. The group moved after being asked to leave but started yelling at pedestrians and flashing gang signs nearby. Most of the group ultimately went inside a home or dispersed when the police said they'd be arrested. This guy, though, rides his bicycle back towards the high school, allows another person to get on the back of his bike, and rides onto the school lawn. At that point in time, the police drive their car. He's in the median. They force him to stop in order to arrest him. He jumps off his bike. He puts his arms behind his back. The complaint says officers forcefully and aggressively grabbed him by each arm, and one of them apparently twisted his arm upward. The guy, the guy's arm breaks. The two police say, now, look, we, we didn't use excessive force on this um, we admit he put his arms behind his back but we denied that he had forcefully grabbed okay etc etc they filed a civil rights lawsuit against the police and now apparently they're recommending a settlement in the amount of sixty eight thousand dollars sixty eight thousand dollars 
for, in this case, a defendant who started the entire situation by not complying with police orders. Now, again, why am I not criticizing the city attorney's office? Because in one of these situations, you know, you, you risk going to a trial and what happens is some jury decides, oh, this is this terrible thing and we're going to award hundreds of thousands of dollars. So sometimes you just have to settle. But in one of these cases, again, none of this happens if the guy isn't where he's not supposed to be and complies with police orders in the first place. He doesn't, and he's walking away with 68 grand. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So, Gru, who's producing the show today and always, did you see any movies over the break? Have you been in movies lately? Uh, no, but uh, only because it was too busy. I meant oh. to go see Knives Out on Christmas. And it was, every single thing was sold out. Well, we went, I, I saw two movies over Christmas. One, um, and if you follow me on Twitter, we, we actually, we actually. oh no, I guess it was my wife was posting on Facebook. We had like this date night. We went to see Bombshell, which is the Fox News Yeah, thing. how was that? It was good. Um, you know, it was very much like, I mean, Showtime did this five or six part miniseries or seven or eight part called The Loudest Voice. It was very yep. similar to that. It, it's all about kind of the, the demise, Fox News and the way they objectify women and stuff like that. But it, I, I thought that was interesting. But the movie that I saw, and I mentioned this on Twitter. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 This is a movie that, candidly, I think it is a must-see movie. It is one of the best movies I have seen in years and years. And that movie is the new Clint Eastwood movie, Richard Jewell. Now, it's not doing that much box office business because it got just it got savaged by reviewers because it is very very politically incorrect but i'm telling you if the guy who plays richard jewell isn't nominated for an oscar it's going to be a a travesty for those of you not familiar with the richard jewell story richard jewell was a security guard and, and the guy was admittedly sort of an odd duck um, he was kind of a he was he was one of these guys who was was a wannabe cop, and he you know lived with his mother in Georgia, and he and he'd worked as a security guard, and he'd worked as a campus guard, and he kind of had this sort of authority it, authority complex. I mean, he he was one of these people who you know thought having the badge gave him all this power and stuff, but he wanted to be a cop, but he, he was sort of an odd guy, so he's working security at the Atlanta Olympics and he's at Centennial Park which is their the big the big central area that they had and it's where they had all the con- concerts and stuff and what happens is a, a series of pipe bombs go goes off and and he had he had found the bombs what happened was he was the first one to see the bombs what happened was he sees a bunch of kids that are like um in this this area and they're drinking beer and they're throwing beer bottles he tells them to move so they give him a little bit of static and then he he notices that there's this this backpack that's under a bench where these kids were. So he goes to get the, the, the cops to remove the, get rid of the kids. And the cops come back and they notice this backpack and they, then he insists that they call, that they call in the, the people who look at suspicious packages. And it turns out that these are three pipe bombs that are there. And the movie does a pretty good job of, of depicting this. And then what happens is they, 
they they try to move everybody back. I mean, this is this huge crowd. There's tens of thousands of people that are there. This is the the Olympics in Atlanta, and they're moving people back while the bomb squad is coming there, and the the, the bombs go off, and a couple people killed, a couple people hurt. But I mean, Richard Jewell in the beginning, he he's hailed as this hero because he's the guy who found the bombs first. Well, early on in the investigation. The FBI, who doesn't really have a clue as to, you know, who, who set these, the, the FBI uh, decides that they're going to focus on him. And they bring in, the, they have these security people who do, and again, Richard Jewell is, is kind of an odd guy, one of these guys who wants to be a police officer. And they, they bring in a psychological profiler who says, okay, this guy fits all the characteristics of the lone bomber. You know, he's, he's somebody you know, who, um, you know, wants attention and wants to be a police officer and has this hero complex, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and, and they, they look at all these things and they figure, okay, he fits all these points of the profile. So they start to focus on him. Now, interestingly, and, and this shows how law enforcement can really get it wrong, early on, the they early on, this whole lone bomber profile thing falls apart because a few minutes before the bombs go off, there's a call that's made from a payphone outside of Centennial Park saying, hey, there's bombs in Centennial Park. It, it's, they're going to go off. Well, it, they, they knew where Richard Jewell was. All these witnesses knew where he was. They were able to place his whereabouts, and he would not have had time to go and, and make this phone call. He couldn't have physically gotten from where people saw him to where the payphone was and back. So this this idea, they focused on him originally because they thought the guy was, well, he fits this lone bomber profile. Early on, they knew that he couldn't have been a lone bomber. There would have had to have been an accomplice. So the whole profile thing falls apart, but the FBI doesn't change its targeting. They, they, they focused on him. Then what happens is somebody in the FBI leaks the story to an aggressive reporter for the Atlanta newspaper. Now, where this becomes controversial is the movie implies that the FBI agent and the reporter um, – he, he t- gave her the information, and then they had sex. There's no, there, there's no evidence as to whether they did or didn't have sex. But there, there's no question that you know an FBI agent leaked this information. But because they introduced the sexual element to it, it becomes even more controversial. And you got people saying, "Oh, this reporter would never have slept with people to get the story, etc." So because, and then it, it goes on to detail just the living, you know what, that the the FBI ended up making this guy's life. Um, after falsely accusing him of of this and then leaking the news to the press. And so it's an interesting story, again, of, of law enforcement excess, which, of course, is very politically incorrect nowadays, the idea that could the FBI do anything wrong. Well, in this case, the FBI was way out of bounds. And media excess, because you have all these report and NBC did it and CNN did it and the Atlanta Journal Constitution did it you know they they get this leak and then they decide that they're going to run with this and they really ruin the guy's life well as it turns out he he didn't do it i mean it was some guy years later that they catch who was the real bomber but you you essentially destroyed this man's life it's an outstanding movie that again because of the politically incorrect nature of the movie, the fact that it, it does highlight, in this case, FBI excesses, which is what some people just 
don't want to look at nowadays. They think that there's an uncomfortable parallel to what went on with the FBI's Russia investigation and then the implication that you'd have some reporters who would do whatever it takes to get a story. You put those two things together and it's not sellable to the mainstream media. But I'm telling you something, before this movie goes away, it's really a must-see movie. It is one of, I, I do topics from time to time where I really have to go back and think about, you know, what's the last really good movie you saw? Well, for me, for a long time, it's going to be this Richard Jewell movie. So if you get a chance to see it, I highly, highly recommend it. When we come back, all right, should you be punished for trying to save the planet? Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So, very glad to have you with us. All right. In Wisconsin, just to kind of go through the the background on this, when you stop to fill your car up with gasoline, whatever that price you see that's up there, what's gas right now, around $230, $240 a gallon, um, there is a federal gas tax of 18.4 cents. There is a Wisconsin gas tax of 32.9 cents. So, uh, about, you know, do the math, about 51 cents a gallon goes to taxes, all right? Wisconsin has the 19th highest state gas tax in the country as of February of last year. So that that that's the deal. The Wisconsin gas tax has been frozen at that level for a long time, and there's this huge argument going about whether we should increase it or not. But between the federal and the state gas tax, there, there's it's about 51 cents a gallon, somewhere in the neighborhood. So about 20% of the cost you pay per gallon goes to goes to taxes all right now what about a situation where you don't drive a car that uses a lot of gasoline for example what if you drive a hybrid car you know one of those and i'm talking about the true hybrids one of the ones that it's got a gasoline engine it's got the battery and as a result you're you're not you're running off the battery for a long period of time, and then the gasoline engine is only kicking in at certain points. So instead of getting you know 25 or 30 miles a gallon, you're getting, I don't know, 50 miles a gallon, 60 miles a gallon, whatever that would, would be. But you're still driving on the same roads as people who have the internal combustion engine cars, and you're still, so to that extent, you're still creating a wear and tear. Well, in Wisconsin... There has been, for the last couple years, a $75 surcharge on gas electric hybrids that people were supposed to pay if you owned one of those hybrids when you register your car. They hadn't been collecting it, though, because there was some question in the law about, you know, what, what exactly was a hybrid. There was, there was a, without, you know, getting too deep into the weeds, there was a question about, you know, what, at what point in time, what makes something a hybrid? In any event, that has now been cleared up. So, uh, as a result of the new budget, people who own hybrids now have to pay an extra $75. If you own an all electric car, you have to pay $100 in addition to the usual registration fee. Well, there are, what's the number I saw here? There are about 70,000 hybrid vehicles in Wisconsin. So now you have the, these 70,000 people who now all of a sudden they're getting charged an extra 75 bucks. And a number of these people are starting to say, wait a second, this isn't fair. 
Why should we be punished by doing the environmentally responsible thing? Yeah, we, we own the car, and yes, we're paying the registration fee, and yes, we get extra mileage, you know, better mileage, and yes, we don't have to use as much gasoline, but, you know, we, we pay typically a surcharge. It costs extra to buy these hybrid vehicles, etc. It might cost more if we have to replace out the batteries and things like that, but the argument is that it is fundamentally unfair to charge hybrid owners an extra 75 bucks just because they are being quote unquote environmentally responsible by driving a car that gets a lot of mileage. And the argument would also be, hey, if I was driving a regular vehicle, by regular I mean a non-hybrid vehicle, but a small car that was getting 40 miles a gallon versus somebody that was driving an SUV getting 25 miles a gallon, you know, you're not charging that driver more why charge the hybrid drivers more? Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't have a problem with the extra charge. Do you? Is it unfair to punish people for being environmentally responsible? Shouldn't we be encouraging this as opposed to imposing a surtax? My answer would be it's a more complicated issue. But what do you think? And if you're a hybrid driver, do you think it's fair that you now have to pay an extra 75 bucks to register your car? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Back with your calls in just a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. I think. Look, I I understand why people might think they're being punished. I actually I don't have a problem with this this hybrid tax. Let's start with John in Hartford on WTMJ. Yeah, thank you. Hi, John. Yeah, I have, yeah I would have no problem with their paying that um, extra money because it's not an environmental issue. It's a matter of. What does the gasoline tax money go to? Why was it first instituted? To to maintain and, and build new roads. Mm-hmm. Uh, those hybrid vehicles use the roads as much as non-hybrids, but they're not really helping to maintain and, and build new ones. Well, not propor- right, not proportionately. Yep. Okay. Well, let me ask you. The, well, right. Well, let me yeah. ask you the tough question then. Is that if that argument is correct? And by the way, I I agree with that. But is that then a justification? I mean, what about the the small car that gets internal combustion engine? You're not a hybrid that gets 45 miles a gallon versus the car that gets I don't know the SUV that gets you know 25 miles a gallon should should by that rationale should the smaller car that gets 45 miles a gallon pay a surcharge as well well i hadn't thought of that one <laughs> that's what i'm here for <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah no okay no thank no okay, i mean no thank i know it i mean i think you know that's one of the things a- actually it, it's what because I, I think that that's an interesting argument to make. It's one of the reasons why I think the whole gas tax method of financing the roads is is antiquated because it doesn't take that into account. I, I think under under a perfect in a perfect world, what you do is you would have the registration fees tied to the amount of miles that one drives. But I, I recognize that that's not a practical way to go about things because 
if you depended on people having to go in every year and, and get their odometers checked and all, people would just stop registering their cars or you'd have all sorts of fraud. I, I agree. I don't think there's a practical way to deal with that. So I appreciate that it, it is a little bit unfair because, like I say, if I'm a hybrid driver, I'm saying, okay, well, look, I've had to pay extra for the hybrid. Yeah, I'm getting extra mileage, but, but you know, I, I've I've got these added costs, and I appreciate that maybe I'm getting, if not a free ride, maybe I'm getting a, a discount because I'm not paying my quote-unquote fair share. But, you know, what about the person that's driving the little car and they're getting just as much mileage? It's an imperfect system all around. But I, I think that given, and to John's point, the whole idea that what we're trying to do is you're trying to make people pay for using the roadways because they cause that wear and tear. I think it's fair to say that a car, for example, like a hybrid, and you're getting the advantages of the increased gas mileage and things like that, you're, you have to figure out some other way to compensate the, the taxpayers to make that person pay for it. And while it's an imperfect thing, I, I don't think it's an unreasonable thing, even though it is kind of a wake-up call now to a lot of hybrid drivers who, even though it's been the law for a couple of years, the Department of Transportation, for a variety of reasons, didn't collect it. Now you register, you know, it's an extra 75 bucks, And then, of course, if you register your hybrid in Milwaukee County or the city of Milwaukee, it's even more than that can't help you with that one this is jeff wagner live from the annex wealth management studios at historic radio city this is the jeff wagner show and now wtmj's jeff wagner good afternoon wisconsin welcome back to the show so grew mike mccarthy former packers head coach he interviewed for the head coaching. He's been out of football for a year. Interviewed for the head coaching job for the Carolina Panthers, and apparently is also going to be interviewing with Cleveland and with New York. Do you hope he gets a job? I mean, I guess so. I would like to have him be employed. I don't. Don't you hope that everybody has a job? Well, okay. Do you think he should be coaching in the NFL again? I don't think he gets hired. You don't? I, I, I don't think he gets hired. Because why? Because he's damaged goods? Why do you think so? I think there's newer spike, sparkly things, and uh, people have already seen what they get the gist of Mike McCarthy. Uh, I think it's. Well, but the gist of Mike McCarthy is you had a guy who, I mean, I, I understand it ended badly with the Packers, but I mean, you have a guy who was a coach for 13 years, won a Super Bowl, went to a lot of playoffs. I mean, it, it's a resume of incredible success. Well, I mean, to a degree, yeah. The the success also came, you could say, with the Aaron Rodgers, yeah. uh, and the, but the the defense was never there. They didn't never really. Okay, had whose a fault is that? Well, I mean, you could say it, it is Ted Thompson, yeah. uh, so it doesn't necessarily lie on to entirely on the shoulders of McCarthy. Okay, th- this is the all right. Th- see, th- this is the new kinder, gentler Jeff. I hope, I, I seriously hope McCarthy gets another chance. And, and here, here's why. First of all, I think he's a really decent guy. I don't know him personally. I met him a couple times. I think he's a really decent guy. And um, I, I think he had an incredible run of success in, in Green Bay. I mean, he, he did this for 13 years. I understand it, it kind of ended badly. And I, I think there, there's a point in time, especially with pro athletes, where it's why you have turnover with with coaches, whether they're pro head coaches in football or baseball managers or basketball coaches. I think there's a a point in time where that 
be, be unlike college where you've always got kids coming in and coming out. I think with pros, after a while, no matter how good the coach is, they tune out. And I understand there's a couple exceptions to that. You might want to point to a Bill Belichick or something like that. But but in general, I, I think all the, whether you're a baseball manager or a head coach in basketball or football, there, there, there's kind of a shelf life. I I think I think McCarthy did a, a really good job. And to the extent that there are people who say the Packers should have won more, and I don't disagree with that, I'm not sure how much I, that blame I put on, on McCarthy. I mean, I, I think I think Ted Thompson, the general manager, particularly the last several years, I, I, I don't think he did a great job of, of drafting the kind of players that McCarthy needed. And just like, if you remember a few Packers head coaches ago, Mike Sherman, remember Mike Sherman was the head coach and the general manager. I always thought Mike Sherman was a decent head coach. Mike Sherman was a lousy general manager, and Mike Sherman, the general manager, got Mike Sherman, the head coach, fired, in my opinion. I I think the same thing, to an extent, was true with with McCarthy. I, I think that... Yes, the, the defenses never developed appropriately, and yes, there were problems, and yeah, there were some spectacular failures, and I, I think he has to take responsibility for some of that. But in general, I think it was a pretty good run that, that he had, and coaching Aaron Rodgers could not have necessarily been a picnic. And I'm an Aaron Rodgers fan. Don't get me wrong on that either. But very, very strong-willed. And I, I think it, I think there was a time where ultimately Mike McCarthy lost the team. And I think the Packers were right to move on. I think it was just that time. But to me, that doesn't mean that Mike McCarthy's a bad coach. Matter of fact, I think he's probably a pretty good coach. I think he has a, a lot to offer. And I guess I just, on a personal level, he wants to coach again. He's been very clear about that, and I hope he gets the opportunity. Now, I, I don't know that he's going to turn around new, the New York Giants or Cleveland's been hopeless for forever. And you know, in Cleveland, you've got the ownership is is a mess. You know, in New York, you've got uh, a different sort of situation. But they've been through a lot of coaches. I, again, I, I I don't know. But if Mike McCarthy wants to coach, just on a personal level, I hope he gets a chance to do it. Because, like I say, I, I think he's a decent guy. I don't think he was mistreated in Green Bay. But I, I don't necessarily think he gets enough credit for what went on in Green Bay. And given the fact that you have a lot of coaches that are less successful than Mike McCarthy, who are regularly recycled, I hope he gets another chance. I, I do. And whether it's in Cleveland or New York or Carolina or one of these other spots, I, I just on a personal level, I, I'd like I'd like to see him get another chance. That's the kindler, gentler Jeff for 2020. I just, you know, it's just, I, I think he deserves a, another chance, and hopefully somebody will take that chance with him. Okay, last Sunday, another one of these incidents. This was this whacked-out guy who walks into this church in Texas and starts shooting. North Texas Church, there is the ceremony. There, there's a, I'm sorry, there's a service that's going on. Guy walks in, starts shooting. Well, the, the one person killed as a result of this, but it could have been a lot worse because in Texas, people are legally allowed to carry firearms all sorts of places, including places of worship, unless the place of worship makes a decision that they're not going to allow it. They can post signs, but otherwise, you know, you, you can carry guns. And people in Texas do, in fact, carry guns. So what happened is the gunman comes into the service. He starts shooting, pulls out the gun. 
opens fire on the worshipers, and within a couple seconds, he is killed when um, you have two men who are carrying guns. They pull out. Um, they pull out guns and they return fire. One of them was a former military guy who was a reserve sheriff's deputy. But anyhow, the, the fact that you have you know two people that, that immediately start shooting, they put down the shooter, stopping a situation that could be a lot worse. This has now sparked this huge conversation about you know handguns, raising the question about um, are people, if we allow law-abiding citizens to legally carry firearms into places like churches. And I agree, it's a hell of a commentary on today's society that you would need to carry a gun into a church. But given the fact that we do live in the society where there are crazy people that are out there, I guess the question becomes, you know, are we in fact safer because we do allow people with proper licensing, etc., to carry firearms in some of these public places. And this... This ties in, in a way, to you know the, the shootings that we had in Wisconsin in the schools uh, a couple weeks ago, where you had again. Remember, you had the school, um, the police officers that were in the schools who confronted uh, again out of control students, and because they were there and because they were armed, they were able to stop a situation from getting materially worse. Okay, eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. In a perfect world, nobody would need to be armed. Unfortunately, we do not live in a perfect world. Do you think we are safer or would be safer if we expanded the ability of people to carry firearms in public places? Certainly in Texas, that's exactly what happened. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. And my answer, by the way, to this is, look, it, it's a sad it's a sad thing that you need to do this. But the reality is that churches, schools need to have security plans in place. And whether it's armed parishioners or armed security guards, yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, this is what we've come to because you have these situations that would have been a lot worse. In this case, were it not for the fact that you had worshipers who were armed. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. Let's start with Tim and Grafton. Tim, hello. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Very well, thank you, sir. Okay, hello? what what do you think? Is, hey. this, is, this, is this a reason to let people carry firearms or to say, hey, look, we, we shouldn't have people carrying guns into churches? Well, let me give you an example here, Jeff, and I think I'll make the point. San Francisco, very liberal city, right? Probably no, you know, probably posted all over the city, no guns allowed, no weapons allowed of any kind. Right. If this happened at a church in like somewhere like San Francisco or Seattle, some liberal city like that, do you think the carnage would have been much worse than it was in Texas? Well, there wouldn't have been anybody to stop the shooter from continuing Correct. to shoot. That's my point, Jeff. So, in other words, he could have probably reloaded at that point and probably killed 10 or 12 more, depending on whatever, you know, he wanted to. But this time he got taken out from 30 feet away with a guy who was a – that was a great shot, by the way, Jeff, right? Yep. Mellon, that was a great shot by that FBI guy, the former FBI guy. 
Do you think it, it, my answer is absolutely yes. The carnage would have been probably ten times worse in a no carry zone if people are going to go in there and, and freak out over a gun. So let me ask you this: Let, Let's say you, yes. you go you uh-huh. go to churches you go to church on Christmas Eve for the for the service, and you notice that there is yep. somebody at the end of the pew who who's got a concealed firearm somewhere. You know, you you happen to see Love it. it. And you got no problems with it. Okay, good enough. Thanks for calling. I, and I tell you, I, the reason I ask you that is I wouldn't either. Now, I think, you know, in this case, they were volunteer security people. I think it is a sad reflection on our society nowadays that you need that. All right? It, it's, it, I mean, look, I, as I was saying earlier, I'm a child of the 70s, okay? My, my high school, I went to Nicolay High School in Glendale, right? It was, it was an open campus. You could come and go. The doors were unlocked. You know, you didn't have to go into the office and sign in. You know, I would walk home from lunch. We lived three blocks away from the school. You would come and go as you please. That was a great time. The idea of somebody walking into a school and starting to shoot it up, it was just, it was alien. You just didn't even think of those things. You didn't think of having to have every door locked. You didn't think about having to worry about security at churches but it, it's a different time and, and that's just kind of the, the reality for this so yeah you, you have to have doors locked you have to have that access controlled and you have to have a security plan at a church and in this particular case th- this one this one worked because it would have been a heck of a lot worse had there not been armed people in that church let's talk to dave dave you're on wtmj hello hello jeff this is uh dave rowley i uh well, first of all, on my first time call, I want to thank you for letting me on the show. Well, thanks for calling. A um, cu- couple things that I'd, I'd like to uh, get uh, corrected for you. There were three killed. Um, yeah, there was uh, basically three shots fired, but uh, the uh, the man was uh, yeah, the nice can't. thing is this entire thing is on live stream video that was saved from the church. Right, yeah, and they don't uh, know whether he and, knew. Right, there, there were actually, I think I said one. There were the second one. There were two parishioners, and then, of course, the shooter was called. Yeah. Right, right, right. Two, two parishioners. Uh, one, one who, who was for sure was armed. But the and and uh, and the, with the video, you can make it real clear. He was not threatened. He he was the first one to pull a uh, pull sure. a shotgun out. It's a, a long a long barreled uh, shotgun. And uh, uh, it was very interesting to see that uh, uh, when that uh, when when that happened, one parishioner tried to tried to draw that he was pointing at, and the parishioner was uh, uh, was shot immediately. And uh, less than a second later, he shot another man who was just sitting still uh, in a uh, uh, in uh, in the pew. And uh, the third gentleman, after he had a clear shot, uh, mm-hmm. was able to take out the uh, the man as he was preparing to shoot, probably towards the minister. So, was the church right in allowing people to bring firearms in? Absolutely. Yeah, I thank you. I I I agree, and, and that's. I, I remember for years and years and years when we were debating the whole subject of concealed carry in Wisconsin, I remember there were 48 other states had some form of concealed carry. And the argument was always, well, if you allow law-abiding citizens to have firearms, what's going to happen is you're going to get into a situation where, well, um, the situations, if you allow law-abiding citizens to have firearms, what's going to happen is you're going to have people who are going to end up uh, just, just shooting it up, and they're, they're going to behave in an irresponsible fashion. And the truth of the matter is, no, that that's really not the case, and that's really not how it, it's worked out. Now, can you find a situation where you have a law-abiding citizen or somebody with a concealed carry permit who might have behaved in an irresponsible fashion? Well, sure you can. I mean that that that's always that's always going to be the case. 
But by and large, do you see people that um, have the concealed carry permits? Do you see them misusing those? As a general rule, the, the answer would be would be no. And in this particular case, I don't think you can argue that those parishioners at that church in Texas were lucky, number one, that you had people who were armed that were in that church, and number two, that the people who were armed knew how to use the firearms. If anything, it might be an argument, and I've had this conversation about Wisconsin's laws, it, it might be an argument that along with concealed care getting that permit, there should also be some sort of training requirement that goes along with it. Because the people who had those guns in that church, they they knew how to use the guns and they were able to use them in a responsible fashion. Now, Now, in Wisconsin, of course, all you have to do is you have to apply for the permit, you go through the background check, you have to sit through a couple-hour class, and you get the, the concealed carry permit without ever having been able to prove that you are proficient. As somebody who did, in another life, carry a gun for a couple of years, you know, I always had to qualify with that gun. Thankfully, I never had to use it. But I always had to qualify with it to prove that I could, in fact, shoot it if I ever had to. You don't have to do that in Wisconsin, and I've always thought that that's a flaw in our concealed carry law. That notwithstanding, though, I don't think there's any question that, you know, this is a situation where law-abiding citizens with firearms were able to take a very, very tragic situation and stop it from becoming worse. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. One of the things that Governor Tony Evers is doing that is different from what former Governor Scott Walker did is that during his eight years as governor, Scott Walker issued no pardons, no commutations. And I think his his philosophy was that regardless of the fact that the state constitution gives the governor the power to issue pardons or commute sentences, he didn't think it was appropriate for the executive to essentially override what the court system ha- had done. Tony Evers has taken a different approach to this, and uh, Evers has issued pardons. Now, um, the the pardons he's typically issued have been directed at people who had committed crimes, generally speaking, lower-level crimes, a number of years ago, and have gone on to lead productive lives, but because something they did when they were 21 years old and now they're 55, they, they can't own a gun to go hunting or something like that. And as a general rule, I've had no problem at all with the, the pardons that Governor Evers has, has issued. That being said, I think it's something that you have to use sparingly because I, I don't think you want a governor any governor deciding, hey, I, I just I disagree with uh, this judge or with the court system, and so I'm going to exert my will. And I've, I've been critical of executives, starting with President Trump, for some of their use of, of pardons. President Clinton, I think, just abused the pardon process on his way out. Well, credit where credit is due, Governor Evers right before Christmas, rejected a request to commute the sentence of Brendan Dassey, who was, of course, convicted of the murder of Teresa Halbach. Now, this has some people all upset because, again, if they watch the documentary, quote-unquote documentary, Making of a Murderer, they think that there's this incredible injustice that Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey are in prison. As somebody who followed that trial closely, I have no question in my mind that both of them are guilty as you know what and, and belong in, in prison. But credit to, to Tony Evers because it would have perhaps in some cir- circles been easier if he had issued a commutation and he just simply said, hey, we're not commuting sentences right now. This isn't a pardon 
where, you know, somebody who's, again, served their time and demonstrated the fact that, you know, they've been a model citizen for years and years, we're going to, you know, give them essentially a clean slate. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about releasing somebody who has been convicted of murder from prison. So, you know, kudos to Governor Evers for, at least in this case, doing the right thing and refusing to commute the sentence of Brendan Dassey, even though this would have been, in some respects, the more politically popular thing to do. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So, Drew, are you impressed? That I've gotten through two and a half hours, and other than one minor glitch that probably nobody else would have noticed except you, I, I have I, I've not botched the eight five five six one six one six twenty number. Well, a little bit. I also just envisioned you at home uh, during the two week <laughs> absence, just blindfolding yourself in a chair and repeating the number over and over and over. You would be wrong. <laughs> oh man, you, you would you would be wrong. As a matter of fact. Uh, this morning, I was like, "What is that new number again?" But I, you know, I was actually okay. But we, I've, I've made a conscious effort. You no, know, when we first did this a couple of weeks ago, it was I, I admit, for, especially for the first hour of the show, I announced it. It was the Jeff Wagner drinking game. If you sat there with a bottle of your favorite liquor and you decided to take a shot every time, I was tempted to say four one four instead of like eight five five. Well, you would have been intoxicated by the end of the first hour. But I actually, I got better the second two hours. I got better the second day, and and today, again, I, I think I. I, I, it just, you know, old habits die hard. And after 20-some years, it's just kind of ingrained to you. But I think everybody's starting to get used to it. It's 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, so I, I, I was telling the story at the start of the show about how my, my New Year's Eve evening started out. We were having an open house. So I think we ended up with like 30 or 40 people, not not a full-blown party where everybody stayed till midnight. Matter of fact, at, at midnight, I think we were down to uh, the, just six other people besides Fran and I. But, you know, we were having an open house. We had a number of, of friends and acquaintances and stuff over from very different family members from you know, very divergent groups. And my, my New Year's Eve evening started by going into the basement about 30 minutes before people are supposed to arrive. My mission is, okay, bring up some folding chairs. And the, the hot water heater has decided to spring a leak, and there's water all over the floor. And actually, you know, we called the plumbers and got it all taken care of. But it's like, okay, that's, that's, that's how New Year's Eve is starting. But it, it was nice to have people over. And I, I enjoyed having the, the New Year's Eve party. But it was interesting because I was talking to a couple of people who were there, including some of my friends who've, you know, we, we, we go back more and more New Year's Eves than I can remember. And we were thinking and we were talking about some of the places that we had gone on, on New Year's Eve, some of the bars or restaurants that we had gone over the years to new, on New Year's Eve that were, were no longer there. For example, um, one of the places that I used to go to a lot on New Year's Eve. There used to be a Pandles restaurant in um, in Bayside, right on the corner of like Lake Drive and Brown Deer Road. And it was there, it was an institution, it was there forever and ever, years and years. And they had a, you know, they used to have a, a New Year's Eve thing. And we used to go there. Now that, that hasn't been there for a, a while. 
we went to um, on, spent a couple of New Year's Eves at a, at a restaurant called the Boulevard Inn. That that's when that's been gone. And then we were kind of going through. Oh, remember that New Year's Eve we spent at Maury's, the Tavern on Prospect. We were going through some of the different you know bars or restaurants that we used to love to go to that aren't there anymore. There was a story the other day in the Journal Sentinel about bars and restaurants in the Milwaukee area that closed just in in 2019. And um, for example, a, a number of them were at Bayshore. Town Center, the Sprecher Restaurant, the Homewood Fire Grill. I mean, that one ended up closing. Um, the Applebee's Neighborhood Bar, that one was at Bayshore that ended up closing. Smith, the restaurant that was in the uh, Harley-Davidson, um, the, mo- the hotel, that was there. Milwaukee Beer Bistro, Silver Spring House, which was a place that if you grew up in Glendale, you, you went to. And I admit I spent a couple New Year's Eves there. That one's gone. Devon Seafood and Steak, that was at Bayshore. That's closed. Friday's Front Row Sports Grill um, closed in December. They're going to reopen that under some other name. But, you know, the list kind of goes on and on and on. All these places that you used to hang out at that, that don't exist anymore. And we were taking a walk down memory lane, and somebody was saying, well, remember this place or remember that place? And it was quite interesting. So I thought what we would do you know, before we concentrate completely on 2020, we'd, we'd look back on 2019 and the years past. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Before we look forward, we look back. A bar or a restaurant that you used to regularly go to, for example, that you, you miss, it's closed Maybe you never thought the place was going to close. Maybe it was a place that you used to hang out at a lot, and now it's just gone. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I call this segment Gone But Not Forgotten. All right, that bar, that restaurant, maybe you went there for New Year's Eve. Maybe you were just the regular. Maybe it was your cheers, and now not there anymore, and you wish it was still open. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Back with your calls in just a second. This is Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Hey, before we go to the phones, lest I forget, um, if you have money invested in the stock market, uh, 2020, starting out with a bang, Dow Jones Industrial heading for a record high close. Right now, it's up about 255 points. The NASDAQ, which is the tech-heavy indicator, that's up a full 1%. It's up 96 uh, points. Um, Big, big day in the stock market, I, I think. The reason it's probably driving it is reports over the last couple of days indicating that uh, there's at least a tentative preliminary agreement, uh, trade agreement between the United States and China. So that's uh, something that has been roiling the markets. And so it looks like they're making progress on that. Okay, 855-616-1620. I was thinking on New Year's Eve of all the places we used to hang out at, and uh, so many of them are gone. Let's start with Jim. Uh, Jim, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff, I know you're going to like this one. It's uh, Mark's Big Boy. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. We used to go to the one on Port Road all the time. Yep, yep. And uh, they had the best fish and chips that you can imagine, as I'm sure you remember. They were fantastic. Yep. yep. And uh, I've actually been to the original Bob's Big Boy in Burbank, California. 
Right. No. And of course, they, they did have your favorite statue out there. Oh, the big, right. Now, thanks. Yeah, see, it's funny you mentioned that because we, we had a number of people that came over to the house on New Year's Eve and had not been to our house before. So I was taking tours. And if you take a tour of our house, there, there's like little big boy bobbleheads all over. And they would say, well, why do you have the big boy bobbleheads? And I'd say, well, because, you know, I've always wanted to get one of those eight or nine feet high big boys and, you know, put it outside and uplight it. And I haven't been able, I, I, I've been told I can't. Which probably makes sense, so I've settled for the bobbleheads. All right, let's talk to, uh, let's see, 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Steve in Oconomowoc. Hi, Steve. Good afternoon. Hi, gone but not forgotten. Chee-chees. Okay, um, yeah, they had, a, you know, for people who might not be familiar, they had several of them throughout this area, and those restaurants were as hot as a you, you know you could you could wait in line for an hour and a half or two hours on a Friday or Saturday night to get into a Chi-Chi's. Yeah, we frequented the one out on Blue Mountain Road. Okay, and the, the seafood enchiladas and the seafood nachos, nobody makes them like they make them. Yeah. Well, what I thought. Them, I should say. Well, what I thought was was so great about Chi-Chi's too is it was um, it wasn't really authentic Mexican food, but it was Mexican food for American tastes, and I think a, a lot of people exactly. really yeah, a lot of people really a- appreciated that. If you wanted authentic Mexican food, Chi-Chi's wasn't the place to go. But nevertheless, they were great. And um, back in the days when I still drank margaritas, those margaritas were pretty darn good too. Yeah, especially the strawberry one. Yeah, there you go. Thanks, thanks for the call. Yeah, it's, I see. I'm a, I'm kind of a, a basic, you know, guy, but that, that's okay. Works for me. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's talk to Hugh. Hugh, you're on WTMJ. Yes, uh, uh, years ago, George Diamonds in downtown Milwaukee. I, I eloped with my first wife, and when we came back to Milwaukee, we went, we went to George Diamonds and had a wonderful steak dinner. I'm, I'm going back to the 60s, 1961. Got it. Well, okay, that you eloped with your first wife and then came back, and that was kind of where you celebrated, huh? At George Diamonds in downtown Milwaukee Steakhouse, yes, and it's been gone for many, many years. That's it. Hugh, my note says you're calling us from Florida. Where in Florida are you? Uh, uh, Silver Springs, Florida, uh, just uh, east of Ocala, Florida, oh, uh, sure. about 70 miles uh, northwest of uh, uh, Orlando. Outstanding. Well, thanks for listening. And, uh, hey, it's, I, I know there's going to be some time in the next couple of weeks that I'm going to be very envious of you down there listening over the stream. But um, at least today, it's 45 degrees. Can't complain too much. Let's talk to Mark in Port Washington. Mark, you're in WTMJ. Hello. Hello there. I was going to mention Mark's big boy, too. I'm a poor Washington guy, but instead I'll mention Nino's or even Echo Bowl. Echo Bowl on, uh, on, used to be on Port Washington Road in Glendale there, yeah. That's, I, yeah, I, there's a Walgreens there now. Yeah, there's, they're right. All, 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 these, all these places from our childhood, they get replaced, and they're either now they're either a bank or they're, all, they're a CVS or they're a Walgreens. I can't figure it out. Yeah, I, yeah, me either. Yeah, no, it's, but it's, it's it's interesting. I mean, it does kind of show how bowling changed. But, yeah, I, I spent, as somebody who grew up in Glendale, I spent many hours of my misbegotten youth hanging out at Echo Bowl or going the other way at uh, in Brown Deer, in, uh, in Bayside or Fox Point. There used to be uh, Port Lanes as well. That's where you used to hang out. You'd hang out at the bowling alleys. Jim, Jim, you're on WTMJ. Hello. 
Hello, 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 Jeff. Yes, the Jim. Simon House, and I'm sure you know that place, right? I, I do. As a matter of fact, the Simon House originally was on Silver Spring in 400 West. My mom worked for a dentist whose office was there, and then later on they moved to, to Glendale on Green Bay Road. But we used to go there. That was like if my parents wanted to take me out for a really nice dinner, they'd take me to the Simon House. The finest in Milwaukee, not what you have. You're loaded with dive bars all over the place. Yeah, well, you get some peanuts and a glass of beer today. <laughs> well, I think so. now you got to understand. You're, you're talking to a guy who appreciates a good dive bar as well. But uh, the, the Simon House was just a, a special place, and I, I just I, I don't think it was ever quite the same after they moved from their original location to the one over in Glendale. But yeah, my parents used to love that. Joan in New Berlin. Joan, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Oh, hi, Jeff. As I'm sitting here listening to you, I'm, uh, another one came to mind. But first of all, my, I have a, a bar, uh, Don's Pub on 33rd and Lincoln, was a place that we go to every Friday night for a fish fry. They had really good fish fries, mm-hmm. but they've been gone for a while now. And then um, Tuckaway Su- Supper Club at the Tuckaway Golf Course, that's okay. closed for a few years. That was always very nice. And then my last one, though, is Captain's Steak Joint. Oh. <laughs> remember, remember that, that cheese fondue that they used to have at Captain Steak Joint. That and old fashioned. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can remember. I mean, they, they'd have this. Oh, it's kind of like the, this toasted thing, and then and then you'd kind of dip it into the big things of the, the cheese sauce. And I'm sure, I'm sure that that any health problems I have now, I'm sure what happened at Captain's yeah. helped contribute to some of those. But but that stuff was great. Yeah, they had this Captain Steak Joints all over. Yeah. No, yep, I, that was it. Great choice. No, they and Captain's steak joints were owned, as I recall, by by the Marcus Corporation. And there used to be, I lived for a while when I was in law school. I lived at Juno Village, and there was a Captain's right across the street from there. And then when I was a kid, younger, we always used to go. There was one out by Northridge when there was still a Northridge that was there. There were a number throughout the area, but uh, incredibly successful in all these places that you you end up missing. Okay, let me. I've got a whole bunch of texts on this. Let me share a couple of them. Uh, Country Kitchen couldn't beat the cheap Friday night chicken and fish buffet. I remember Country Kitchens from back in the day. Fuzzy Thurston's Left Guard on Blue Mound. Yeah, that's um, certainly remember the the Left Guard. Um, there were also that was a chain. They also had one in in Appleton that we used to go to as well. Uh, here's somebody we loved and really missed the Port Road Inn. That was up at uh, the River Point Shopping Center. That's now a Walgreens. It is true. That if you think back on all these different bars and restaurants and you think what's replaced them, it's going to be a CVS, it's going to be a Walgreens, or it's going to be a bank. That, that's it. We've just, we have destroyed, we have destroyed everybody's like cheers. We're tearing down the cheers places and we're putting up drugstores. Um, go figure. Uh, let's see. Uh, we used to go to Dylan's Steakhouse in Pewaukee, had fantastic food. Now it's gone. Yeah, there's just a lot of those places that are out there. Sally's Steakhouse downtown, it was a favorite of my dad's. We were just reminiscing the other night. We loved it there and went often. Thanks, Chris from New Berlin. Sally's Steakhouse was in the Astor Hotel, and Sally Papilla, who ran it, she... Let me see. I'm trying to think of how I can tell the story. She was was rumored to have ties to some of the notorious criminal underworld in Milwaukee. And um, once I went to work for the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, 
the FBI did suggest that maybe I should stop patronizing Sally's. They said, yeah, we know there's nothing wrong, but maybe uh, you shouldn't be seen going in and out of there. So I used to love their steak and their onion rings. In any event, okay, it's 2020. There's going to be all sorts of new places that are opening up. It's exciting. But, you know, at the same time, it's always kind of fun to reminisce about the places that are gone but not forgotten. When we come back, we're going to find out what Eric Bilstadt and Melissa Barkley have on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.